0: When it came to the crunch in the Big Apple, Novak Djokovic bit further into the history of tennis. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers. Welcome to the ATP podcast that concludes the 2023 US Open at the end of what can only be described as an attritional final. Alongside me, as she's been all tournament, is Jill Krabus. And we're sitting in the main plaza under the lip of the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And what's been, well, it started off as a very wet day in New York. We're digesting Novak Djokovic's 24th Grand Slam title, an achievement that takes him two majors past Rafael Nadal, four past Roger Federer, equals Margaret Court's all-time record of 24 and makes him the first player to win three Grand Slam singles titles in a calendar year four times. Jill, we've witnessed a truly historic accomplishment.
1: I just It's amazing when you start talking about all those numbers because you almost can't wrap your brain around it with what he's achieved as an individual and it's just outstanding and I just feel like every single time he steps on the court he's breaking records and I just I just don't know how he Find something so deep within himself to consistently do it over and over again. It's just incredible.
0: Yes, and he needed his fitness in the final. The stats from the final read that Djokovic won six three seven six six three in three hours and sixteen minutes. And as that score suggests, the second set was decisive. The set lasted an hour and three quarters. Medvedev had a set point on the Djokovic serve at five four, and after Djokovic had dominated the first set, first set in a bit really. Medvedev looked a stronger player as the second set wore on, and yet Djokovic hung in there. And I don't know, it almost felt like a steal to me when he won it on the 7-5 tiebreak.
1: I would have really loved to see seen Medvedev win that second set just to push it to a third to see what was going to happen because you almost got the sense once Djokovic got the second set under his belt it was going to be a tough feat for Medvedev to come back because it's... One of the most difficult things to do in men's tennis is come back from two sets to love down. And yes, I do feel like Djokovic for moments seemed like he was struggling after a few very, very long points. But but I always feel like he is able to somehow turn it around. And no doubt he was probably feeling it in those moments, but I always feel like he has second, third, fourth, fifth gear that he can go to. So for me, I wasn't worried about him. Seeing him struggle like that, um, but he somehow always manages to be able to to find a way through.
0: You say that. I mean, to me, this was one of his most all court victories. Yes. His serving and volleying was not only, there was an awful lot of it. I don't think he missed any volleys behind the serve. It was remarkable. The stats read 44 net approaches, 137. But actually, most of the ones he lost were in the third set. I mean, after two sets, he'd certainly lost, I think, two points at the net. And it wasn't just that he was serving and volleying, it was quality volleying.
1: That's what stood out to me. I agree with you, Chris. I feel like his volley, looked a little sharper. It looked like he had more pace behind it. I always thought he was a pretty good volleyer because he's coming in beside something that's very strong. But I felt like his volley looked even better. I felt like he was going after it. And I even think that stat is maybe maybe higher because there were a lot of serve and volley attempts where the return didn't even come back into play. It was just that pressure that he kept applying. And I, obviously there was a very tactical strategy from Djokovic to incorporate that from the beginning of the match and it worked. And Even as he did it more and more, I felt like Djokovic got more confident the later stages of that match to be able to continue to do it.
0: Another thing he did was use the slice an awful lot. And I I did something different in this final. I went right up to the very top of the stadium, beyond Rose Ed, and I was looking down from an incredible height and I picked up something that I've never picked up before. And that is that his slice was incredibly effective because Medvedev couldn't do anything with it. He either made an error or he just put a ball with nothing in it sort of generally down the middle of the court. It was amazing just how little Medvedev could do with it. And I found myself thinking, well, why didn't Djokovic use it more? And in fact, in the seconds at tiebreak, he did.
1: I think with that slice, it's always difficult because you have to generate your own acceleration and your own speed to the ball. But I think... I, I do feel like Medvedev can handle that, but I think the other thing Djokovic incorporated well was the drop shot. So I think as the match went along, it almost became hard to figure out whether he was going to drop shot or go for that deep slice. And that's where you can really start to play with your opponent's mind is that disguise and you know, just putting in their head what is going to come. And that that could have provided maybe a little bit of a doubt throughout Medvedev's head. I mean, I, I, I feel like Medvedev played pretty well I felt like he played better against like a Rublev or Alcaraz so I do feel like he played better in later but that had a lot to do with the way Djokovic played yes yeah
0: And, and actually just watching the a few points purely from the Medvedev perspective I found he wasn't doing anything wrong it's just that Djokovic was always in the right place the anticipation was great and what we perhaps underestimate what Djokovic does is when he gets to these balls on the stretch, he will still put them in the last 10 centimetres of the court.
1: It's still ex- extremely accurate and effective. And I, and I also feel like he's adding... a. He has been over the course of the summer and probably over the course of a year, the year or two, but he has been adding a little bit extra pace and power to the forehand in particular. And a lot of times we always know how solid and steady his backhand is. But that's something that stood out to me, is that he's becoming a lot more effective on his forehand. And I I just think that improved, and I think, obviously, his net played improved tremendously.
0: Now, one of the things I hate are these pre-match interviews. And yet today, when Djokovic walked up to do his pre-match interview, I thought, wow, that body language is so relaxed. It was relaxed but determined, there's no question. I didn't think he was out for a day on the beach. But... The contrast with two years ago when all the pressure was on him to complete the calendar year Grand Slam, that was just so striking. And really, you know, he broke Medvedev's first service game. There was something right from the start that was right for Djokovic.
1: I think he's probably just happy to be back in the United States after a, few, after a couple years. Yes. And he's mentioned that from the first moment he stepped on the U.S. soil and Cincinnati in particular, he was just, you know, so happy to be back and be able to play these events. So that could have provide maybe some relaxation as well, but we know no matter how relaxed he seems or is, he always brings that in super intensity to the court.
0: And he had that lovely gesture at the end, he wore a t-shirt which was a uh, homage to Kobe Bryant and 24. Yeah, well that was 20, 24 was Bryant's number. Right. And Djokovic's 24th title, but what I hadn't realized was I mean, I know everyone was touched by Kobe Bryant's death. I think we're always touched by anyone who dies before their natural time, but it clearly hit Djokovic.
1: It did, and he spoke about how much they had spoken in the past. If you know, four or five. I think when Djokovic was saying he was struggling with his injuries, and he really reached out to Kobe to try and get sort of some insight and some support from him someone that had been there maybe struggled with injuries as well and just to be able to get through that because it's not easy as a professional athlete to be able to have those moments where you do struggle and those challenges and i think it's great to hear that you know these stars come together and share the, those insights and what what it takes to to get back to your 100 percent so i think that was nice to hear djokovic talk about that as well
0: All right, it's less than two months since you and i chatted at wimbledon about whether the fact that Djokovic had lost a five-set final at Wimbledon might be significant, and here he is.
1: It's amazing. He's
0: won another one. What a way to bounce back!
1: Yeah, we thought maybe that would show some sign of a little vulnerability or something. <laughs> if these other guys maybe an inkling that they can, you know, make that push, win that slam, but he just he just played absolutely outstanding and he had some he had some tough matches where he went down two sets to love against Djerey was able to fight back and but sometimes those struggles make you even stronger as as the weeks go, as the two weeks goes on and I think he just played exceptional in the semifinals and today against Medvedev I mean he played so well so solid and I agree with you the defense to the offense and being able to just on the full stretch get that power where he needed it it was just incredible
0: In this week's new ranking list, he will be number one for the 390th week. That's extending his own record because uh, the next best is Roger Federer at 311. He's now sufficiently clear of Alcaraz in second place. that It'll take something unusual for Djokovic not to hit the 400 weeks and not to be the year-end number one. Now, I suppose we're getting back into the greatest of all time debate, which I don't think we should get into at the moment. but. I suppose the obvious question is, is it all about numbers? Is it about slams one and weeks at number one? or Is there something extra that's got to go into the mix?
1: I think it's getting to the point of what number isn't he going to break? <laughs> I mean, there's so many and we almost feel like there, there's less to focus on when we can say what numbers he's waiting to beat. But that that is in his mind. He's all about the history, the record numbers. I mean, that's what keeps him so motivated and he's voiced that himself Uh, yes he loves winning these titles and but he wants to be considered the greatest in every single category
0: well we mustn't forget that there are two people to make a final so where does this leave medvedev I think he's had a very good tournament. I,
1: no, I think he's had a great tournament. And I think, you know, he's. I, I love that he said in on the court that he said, you know, if you guys weren't there, he feels like he would have... Or when you guys, when I say like a Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, like if they weren't there, he would have more slam titles. Well, and,
0: five Grand Slam finals. Right. He's played either Djokovic or Nadal in all of them. Yeah. Won one out of five. I mean, one out of five is good, given the yes. opposition.
1: And Djokovic said you'll have many more. And I'm... That just shows you the caliber of tennis that he knows Medvedev. Can bring, and I, I agree with him. I think Medvedev's going to get at least a couple more, if not more than that.
0: I mean, we've been celebrating this sort of new intergenerational rivalry between Alcaraz and uh, Djokovic, but if you look at the rankings, there's now a massive gap between third and fourth. Ruņa will stay fourth, but around three and a half thousand points behind Medvedev in third. Should we be actually thinking of a big three for the time being of Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Medvedev?
1: I don't know if I would go there. I just think there's so many guys that can. I mean, I guess you could argue maybe, but I think there's so many guys that can do well, like Aruna, like a Rude, Sinner Rublev. I mean, I just feel like there's so many that can do so well that it's hard for me to sort of pick another three or four, if that makes sense. I don't know. I think just think that's difficult to choose that.
0: No, yeah, fair enough. I it just it's a. A clear gap between third and fourth in the rankings, which I think will be the case for the rest of the year now. We'll discuss how other contenders for the Nito ATP finals did later in the show, but history was also made in the women's singles final with Coco Goff winning her first major, and it's quite likely to be the first of many. She beat the new world number one Arena Sabalenka 266362 with a quite remarkable display of retrieving and really watchable final. I mean, as a neutral, I was really pleased for Coco. Jill, as an American, it'll have meant an awful lot to you.
1: It was amazing to watch. Um, But it was amazing to watch the turnaround because Sabalenka was in control. I do feel like Goff started a little bit nervy, was making a few unforced errors, but that's what Sabalenka can do to you. She can basically take the racket out of your hands with her power and the pace and the aggressive style of play that she brings. But Coco did a great job of digging in, relying on her speed Um, It started off the turn of the match started off with her just defending, but then she started increasing her speed even more and really defending but hitting some shots to apply that pressure to make Sabalenka for go to go for more. And by the end of the match, she was just playing with with confidence after she won that second set. And I think she's such a great representative of the sport, the way she speaks, the way she carries herself. She gets it. She thanked Billie Jean King on the court when she received the check. She said, this is because of you. And I thought that was a great, great moment.
0: Yeah, I wanted to add that about Goff as a stateswoman. I mean, for me, it's not just the delight of somebody who at 15 was the fourth round at Wimbledon, which therefore created massive expectations. And she's moved up gradually. What I loved about it is that she is a gift to the world. I mean, you only have to turn on a news bulletin to realise that there are plenty of problems, plenty of things to get depressed about. When I hear Goth speak, I think, wow, when we have people like that around, even if they're not in in political or administrative roles, even if she's just a role model in a a high-profile sport, the world is richer for her.
1: Well, she touched on that, especially when someone asked her about dealing with pressure and expectations, and I thought her response was remarkable. She basically just said, you know, when I think about pressure, there are more people in the world that have way more pressure, a family trying to feed their family, someone trying to live paycheck to paycheck on a work day, and she's like, that's real pressure. And so she said having that perspective, which I thought was a phenomenal response, but having that res- uh, perspective is what is allowed her to sort of go out and play more freely. And she's she's mentioned that she felt emotionally fresh here at the tournament, and I think a lot of it had to do with that mindset that she taps into. That's just incredible for a 19-year-old.
0: Wonderful role model. So. Goff and Djokovic take the singles titles. Am I allowed to mention that two weeks ago I tipped Djokovic and Goff to win the of singles? Of course
1: you are. Well done, Chris. Yes.
0: Thank you. Just pat <laughs> on the back. Slipped, slipped out. What <laughs> did I just think? It yes. In the men's doubles, it was another title for Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury. They beat Rohan Bopanna and Matt Ebden in a three-set final, which included a remarkable piece of <laughs> sportsmanship <laughs> by Bopanna. With him and Ebden trailing 2-4 and love 15 in the final set, Ebden hit a cross-court winner as Salisbury came across to poach. So that made it 15-all, right? No. Bupana walked up to the umpire, Jenny Zhang, and said that the ball had brushed against his upper arm as it went through and therefore the point should go to Ram and Salisbury. No-one else had noticed. It was a moment of great honesty and one I brought up when I spoke to Ram and Salisbury about their achievement in making a bit of history... Congratulations, guys. First three-time successive champion since 1912. Raj, you're the history buff. You dug out that fact beforehand, didn't you? I was told it yesterday in press that that was the first time that that was that, or the last time that happened, so I had no idea. I just knew that it hadn't happened in the open era. Someone said that when we got to the final, but, uh, yeah, 1912 was a long time ago. (laughs) Joe, you were very emotional at the end there. Um, Any specific reason?
1: I think just... um just after everything, everything we've gone through together, I think this one means even more. Um, everything we've gone through, us two and all of our team, it's just uh, really special. And yeah, just how, how hard we had to compete and fight throughout that, that match um, and to yeah come out with the win, it's just, um, it's just an amazing feeling and, and very emotional.
0: Raj, one of the things that will stand out was a gesture of immense good sportsmanship in the final set by Rohan Bopana. What did you make of that? Um, probably the the best gesture of sportsmanship I've ever witnessed, for sure. Um, just, yeah, a guy that was... He could have taken... He could have taken that point, and nobody would have ever known, and it was a huge point. It was to give us Love 30 in that game, and, um, you know, he didn't. He decided to do what he felt the right thing was, which was absolutely the right thing, and, um, yeah, I, I can't say enough about how I, much I appreciate that. Jill, it ought to be a big deal. We should take honesty for granted, but somehow it is, and I'm really pleased that Bopana appears to have got the recognition for that really proper gesture.
1: I think that's incredible sportsmanship, and to be honest... We talk about titles and winning and capturing those trophies. But what people remember you for is your character. And I think people are going to remember that moment and the fact that he stepped up and gave that point. It was the right thing to do. He knew it. And in a final, it's even more of an incredible gesture. So I think, I think that's awesome.
0: And I'm sure Bapan will be recognized in some end-of-year sportsmanship awards. There's a bit of noise in the background. Is uh, Djokovic doing his various interviews? So uh, we, we might have to seek somewhere quieter in a second. But first of all, congratulations also should go to Harry Heliovara, who became only the second Grand Slam champion from Finland. Henry Kontinen was the first. When he and his partner Anna Danilina of Kazakhstan won the mixed doubles title, beating Austin Krycek and Jessica Bagula in straight sets in the final. Heliovara and Danilina didn't even know each other when they registered for the mixed doubles less than two weeks ago, right on the sign-in deadline. Now they're on the Grand Slam Roll of Honor. Not bad, eh, Jill?
1: That's a, it was an amazing story, and I loved it. I read that whole article about how they just walked in. It was a last-minute signing together. and. Literally, they walked in there like, who are you? Who are you? Or, do you think we'll get in? Well, let's sign in and try. And then all of a sudden, Grand Slam champions. It's just the story couldn't be any better.
0: There's some great stories among the champions at yes. this US Open, out there? Uh, still with the doubles, you'll be able to hear an in-depth interview that Jill did with the US Open semi-finalist Ivan Dodig this coming Wednesday. That's on the ATP podcast channel. Coming up next, Jill and I will move from the US Open Plaza. You can tell it's getting very raucous in the background. <laughs> We might get uh, the whole of the Djokovic fan club overrunning us in a second. We'll have to find somewhere a little more peaceful, a little more quiet to look back on the rest of the men's singles draw and what we've learned from these past two remarkable weeks. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com. OK, Jill, slightly more comfortable here indoors and a little quieter too. Let's have a look at some of the people who've dominated our thoughts over the past fortnight and where they stand after the US Open. The obvious place to start is Ben Shelton, who, to me, really has arrived even even more than he did in Australia.
1: Well, that's what I was curious about. I was curious to see how he was going to do in front of his home fans on home soil and yes, having that after having that great run at the Australian Open, the quarterfinals did one step further, got to the semifinals, which I was super impressed. Had to go through a couple Americans as well, Tommy Paul and Francis Tiafo. So that was pretty amazing i think on his part but he's so electric on the court he's got a big game huge serve huge forehand but to be able to tie it all together and have that much consistency throughout the two weeks that's a great sign for him to be able to sustain that level because most tournaments are a week long and so that's always a test for him and i thought he handled it exceptionally well
0: but we see a lot of players who have one really good tournament and we know that We can't judge them by that. The fact that he's had a reasonably good year since Australia and now has got through to the semis, do you think that proves he's the real deal or is it going to take another year, year and a half?
1: Well, I always think the second year is the most interesting because your first year on tour all you're doing is gaining points. So you just see your ranking go up and up every single week. So the second year, when you see the player have to defend those points, that's where I like to sort of gauge how they handle those pressures, how they handle those expectations. So yes, I think everything is just on the rise for him right now and everything's exciting and watching you get better and better. So I'm curious to see how he has to defend those points at the Australian Open next year. And then go from there. I, th- I think he has the mentality to do it. I think he has that deep belief, which you can see on the court. Um, so, yes, I think he's going to do well, but t- next year is going to be a test for him.
0: Yeah, I like the fact that he's got a bit of that swagger that all the top champions had. And even that look he gave Djokovic when they shook hands. I think at that time, Shelton was slightly offended by Djokovic's <laughs> celebration with the putting the phone down. Right. I think afterwards he thought it. By the time he was in his press conference, he said, look, you know, he's won the match. He can celebrate how he wants. Yes, yeah. And I thought that was good in the sense that he comes slightly down off his indignation. But it, I think the indignation was a good sign because it shows that he thinks, well, you know, I'm uh, I'm competing on equal terms with him. Yeah.
1: And that's what it's about is having that belief. And I, I remember talking to his dad, Brian, and he was saying from... People were talking about him when he was 10 years old that he just loved competing and loved being out there and just believed that he could do anything. And when you have it from that young of an age, it's just, it becomes innate in you. So I think he's just had that. And so I just—you got the sense that he's not going to be intimidated by anyone. I thought he played really well. He just came up against Djokovic, who we know we all we know what he can do, and I think he's just consistent and stable. And it's not easy to be able to bring that level over and over again. I thought he did a pretty good showing for his first me- meeting against Novak.
0: We've talked an awful lot about Fritz, Paul, and Tiafoe as the next generation. A couple of others have dropped by the wayside. Jared Donaldson is no longer around. Uh, Riley Opelka's off the scene. Chris Eubanks has had a, a good last couple of months. Do you think that Shelton, having beaten Paul and Tiafo, has the potential to overtake all those others?
1: Ooh, overtake? I'm I'm not so sure if I would say that yet. I would love to see the consistency that a Fritz, a Tommy Paul, and a Francis Tiafo have brought over the course of the last two, three, four years. So like I said, I think for Shelton, the next year will be a good test for him to see if he can defend quite a bit of those points and bring that level over and over again. So I don't know if I would jump the gun on that one yet. I think we, you know, take some time and see how he does in the next couple of years.
0: And a lot of the attention was grabbed by that 149 mile an hour serve. But actually... That, although that doesn't make a complete player, it does mean that as he defends his ranking points, he's got a weapon that will give him an awful lot of cheap points.
1: Yeah, and to have that big of a weapon for him, it's going to be about staying healthy as well. I mean, I'm sure he's a strong kid and I'm sure he'll be able to sustain bringing that power over and over again with the shoulder. And But he's he's got the athleticism and so that's another factor to be able to have that consistency is taking care of your body because this is his first kind of real time on tour this year and so to be able to back that up not only mentally but physically that's going to be important as well
0: The other beaten semi-finalist Carlos Alcaraz now I love his maturity including his ability to say in his press conference after the Medvedev defeat that this match shows I'm not mature enough or not as mature as I thought I was not mature enough to get myself out of certain difficult situations I mean of course he's won two majors already so of course he's made it but this guy's going to go further simply because that attitude is first class
1: i think with alcaraz i agree and what impresses me and he's he's not afraid to show his vulnerability which i think is huge because that to me is why he's been able to get over some of the defeats or the losses that he has had and be able to back it up very quickly the next week or two weeks um Roland Garros was a perfect example this year where he admitted that he, the pressure and the stress got to him cramping against Novak. And then what does he do? Goes and wins Wimbledon and beats Novak in five sets at Wimbledon. So I love that he's honest about that. And I think that's why so many people are so gravitate towards him all the time. And I do love that. I love, because he is pretty much, he's very mature for his age. And the fact that he pinpoints that in particular, he's like, I didn't really feel mature in that moment. I mean, that just goes to show you that he's immediately going to grow from from that circumstance. I
0: mean, you talked a few minutes ago about it's the second year that counts. Now, this is not Alcaraz's second year, but in some ways it is because he got to world number one last year, I think much faster than should naturally have happened I mean Djokovic wasn't allowed to play Australia he wasn't allowed to play the four Masters 1000 tournaments in North America he wasn't allowed to play the US Open because of his vaccine stance okay but the fact is he was not eligible given that he chose not to be vaccinated and therefore he lost an awful lot of ranking points from the previous year even if he hadn't won all those tournaments he'd have picked up enough to have stayed world number one I'm pretty sure about that so Alcaraz was thrown into that role which isn't undefined role earlier than he was probably expecting. And I think he's done incredibly well. But maybe there are some slight lessons that most players have learned by the time they get to the top that he still got to learn because it happened so quickly.
1: I see what you mean because I think to some extent there are instances where – things were new for him. You mentioned one becoming world number 1 and also first time he's defending a slam. He won this was his first slam that he won last year at US Open. So there were some firsts for him, but I think he has an amazing perspective about always wanting to grow and learn from those things. So I think he's on the right track. So I I agree. I see what you mean about that. But in his eyes, I almost feel like he always has that mentality of having a first for him because he views things that way. Like this is a first for me growing. This is a first example for him of maybe tapping into the fact that he didn't think he was mature in this moment. And it was the first time we saw frustration from him as well on the tennis court, which was, I think, surprising to many. And I think maybe it almost surprised him. And he stopped himself. But I think it, that almost surprised him and I think maybe that was where his maturity comment came
0: Yeah, from. it was three all in the first set tie break in the uh, semi-final and he played four bad points where he seemed to go absent and just was never in the second set. I've never seen that from him.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's what I mean. I think he was surprised too and... I have to say Medvedev is playing so good. I just think he's hitting his spots so well. He, We always knew he moved well, but I think he's even quicker now. And we know this is his favorite surface, but I, I do feel like he's playing really well. And I think that got Alcaraz to the point where he was frustrated because... Normally, a lot of those shots would be winners, but the exchanges were insane on that, on that match. So
0: let's get on to the quarterfinalists and start with Rublev, who was beaten by Medvedev. Now, when I watched that match, I thought, oh, poor old Andre, he just can't handle uh, Daniel Medvedev. There's, there's something there psychologically. But perhaps I was underestimating just how well Medvedev has played over this past fortnight. And it was that punishingly hot day where the humidity was so high.
1: Yeah, I felt, I actually, I know it was straight sets, but I felt like it was a lot closer match because Rublev was actually up a break in every single set. So he had opportunities, he had moments. But that I watched that whole match, and that was a match where that thought clicked in my head where I was like, Medvedev just, even when he's on the full stretch, he's hitting lines and he's hitting corners of the court. And I think... We always knew Medvedev was a great defender, but I feel like he's doing a better job of transitioning that amazing defence into offence and stepping more up into the court.
0: Sverev. he got to the quarterfinals. He's still really on the comeback post-ankle injury because he missed the whole of the second half of last year. I sort of felt that he was beaten by the four and a quarter hours playing Sinner in the fourth round rather than because Alcaraz was brilliant, even though Alcaraz was brilliant in the quarters?
1: Well, I think Zverev, he's starting to find his form consistently. He won Hamburg, did well in Cincinnati, uh, semifinals and Masters 1000 that he hadn't been in since last year in Rome before the injury. So that was great to see. Um, So I think he's stringing things together it's never easy to come back from an injury like that because you have to one feel better physically but also learn how to trust your movement and so I think he's doing better and better I think this was um, a great showing for him I thought he was playing great just maybe didn't play his best against Alcaraz and I think he was feeling some things physically so that was kind of a shame to see because I think he's starting to play some of his best tennis again
0: and the two Americans speaking in the quarterfinals, Tiafo and Fritz, we've mentioned them in, in, in the context of Ben Shelton, but to me, this was a better tournament for Tiafo because he had the semi final points to defend from last year, so a lot of pressure. The player who I think has reason to be slightly concerned is Fritz because he seems to get stuck at the Quarterfinal stage of all the majors.
1: Well he did face Djokovic, so you have to throw that in there. Which Yeah, but he had Nadal players... on the ropes
0: at Wimbledon last year right. and couldn't finish him off.
1: I know. Um look it's I, I my first thought goes to it is so hard to win a grand slam. Yeah fair. And enough. it's really difficult, especially where you're trying to manage everything for that two week period to be able to peak at the right moment. And that's what's been so exceptional about Djokovic, Rafa, Federer, Murray, um Warinka and it's just so challenging. And yes, I agree. Tiafo backing up that semifinal was huge into the into the quarterfinals because that's an example of what we were talking about, def- being able to defend those points and debuting as a top 10 that was big. And I think um, you know, they've had such good consistency that I think they will be able to do it, but it is so hard to be able to get through all these guys, because the depth, I think, is phenomenal right now in the men's tour.
0: Yeah, and it's not getting any less, but I just get the sense Fritz needs something extra, and I'm not sure where it's coming from. Though, you know, some, some coach can say to him, just try this, and it could revolutionise his game.
1: I think a lot of it has just to do with the mentality and being able to tell yourself over and over because it it, two weeks is is a lot and in order to get to that stage where you can figure out how to still be emotionally fresh by the end of the tournament I think is something that is key for a lot of these guys to be able to win that slam
0: well he'll certainly be in the frame in the last two months of the race to the ATP finals in Turin Couple of other names. I, mean, I mentioned Sinner because he lost in the fourth round. He was expected to get to the quarterfinals. I thought he'd have a really good go at Alcaraz because he knows how to play Alcaraz, but then he lost that marathon match to Sverev. Uh,
1: and I think again, physically struggling at the end of that match, which was which was a shame to see because he's worked so hard and getting stronger and and taking care of his body. And I think he does look better. Um, I just Hopefully he can sustain that and just stay healthy for a long period. But I I think he has the game. I love the way centre plays. I love his attitude, demeanour on the court. I think he'll get one. I think he'll get a slam eventually. Maybe multiple. Who knows? Um, But it was great to see him because I think he's actually playing a lot better, playing more aggressively. And I think that's what he needs to do to progress.
0: Because you see in the slams, he's not had a great year. Lost second round of the French. Uh, against Altmaier, lost fourth round here. I mean, maybe this is just part of the expansion of his game, but I sort of expected more when he teamed up with Darren Cahill at the start of the year.
1: Well, I think he's actually in a good place mentally. I think he physically just um, was starting to hurt during the match against Vera, that long match. So I think mentally he's in a good space, and I feel like I could see that when he was competing on the court. Um, but I think he got a little down in the fact that, you know, things had a little niggles there and here and there that were bothering him. We mentioned
0: Matteo Arnaldi last week. He was still in the tournament. Uh, he lost in the fourth round, as did Jack Draper. I think both of them have come out with their stock enhanced from this fortnight.
1: And I love the way they both play. And they're both such good competitors. And they can both of them. I mean, it's great to see Jack draper healthy again and i hope it stays that way because i think his shoulder was still bothering him but um it's great to see him competing and he had a great match uh against rublev i think rublev just you know physically at the end was just a little bit stronger but jack draper hadn't played a ton of tournaments leading up to the u.s open so i'm i think both of those guys can take away so much from having a great run uh, in new york
0: yeah the, that's the one thing for jack draper To make sure his body stands up to it because he's had great runs before, but after several matches, his body breaks down and that's what he's got to correct.
1: And that's part of it. Just being able to manage that week in and week out. That's a lot for for players, not only physically, but mentally being able to manage all all that stuff.
0: And in terms of players whose stock has risen this past fortnight, I want to include Rohan Bopana here for all the reasons we talked about earlier in the podcast. So that wraps up the US Open for 2023, indeed the Grand Slam season for this year. This coming week is a Davis Cup week, so there are no ATP tour level events. But the following week, there are tournaments in Chengdu and Shuhai, both in China followed by the Labour Cup in Vancouver. I'll be there for that. And for next week's podcast, Candy Reed will take up the reins. She'll be joined in a podcast special by one of the great American coaches, Rick Macy. They'll be discussing Rick's work with the Williams sisters at a young age, how Andy Roddick calls on him to this day for advice, and his top tips for young and old alike. It's a great listen, one I'm sure you won't want to miss. Thanks so much for joining us over the past couple of weeks. My thanks also to Jill Krabus. I'm Chris Bowers. And this is the ATP Podcast.